Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 30th, 2020. In today's podcast, I speak with Dr. Javi Eve Karkowski, who is a maternal fetal medicine specialist and a friend. I've known Javi since she was a medical student at Mount Sinai. Spoiler alert, she was an amazing medical student. Javi recently wrote a book called High Risk, Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected, and it is simply terrific. I highly recommend this book to anyone who has either gone through pregnancy, is considering pregnancy, or knows someone pregnant. Basically, everyone. It is a very human account of what really happens in pregnancy, written from the perspective of a high-risk pregnancy expert and a mother. I enjoyed reading it, I learned a lot, and I really appreciate Javi's take on this topic. I'm fortunate she agreed to come on and talk about her book and her experiences. I'm sure you will enjoy the podcast as well as her book. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and have a great weekend. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're joined today by Dr. Javi Eve Karkowski, who's an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist in New York. And she's the author of a book that was recently released called High Risk, A Doctor's Notes on Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected. Javi, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thank you so much. Just so everyone understands sort of a context. So who are you? Who is Javi Eve Karkowski? You know, where are you from? What led you to medicine and so forth? Long ago and far away, I was once a medical student with a resident named Nady Fox. And maybe because he was somebody who just so clearly enjoyed his work, because Nady, you were the happiest resident I had ever met at the time, <laughs> which was really, really inspiring, right? So many residents are a little bit bitter. I um, became an OBGYN. I also love the work that we do. Ultimately, I finished residency in Boston, and I actually became a generalist for a couple of years in Cambridge. I realized that I missed a lot of the high acuity stuff I had seen during my my residency training at a large academic medical center. And so I came to New York for fellowship in MFM. And I've been here ever since. Well, so actually, I, I have some vivid memories of Javi, the medical student, all of them good, because as as people may guess, if they know you or soon they'll learn about you, you're smart, you're a good medical student, you were a good medical student. But I remember vividly that there was one night, it was at Elmer's Hospital. And there was, you know, there's always like, you know, a thousand people in labor. And you were with uh, a woman in labor who was pushing for like three or four hours and you were with her the whole time. And after the birth, it was, you know, perfect birth, healthy baby, everything was great. And you came out of the room and you looked like you just gave birth. You were, <laughs> you know, it's like three in the morning, you're, you're exhausted, you're like sweating, you're all, you know, messy. But the, the look on your face of total glee, you were so happy that it happened for her and then you were there for her. And at the moment I said, oh, she'd be a really good OB. I mean, cause that is something, you know, if you're doing that and you come out and you love it, you know that you're in, in the right field and you come out, you're like, oh my God, that was the worst experience of my entire medical school. Don't go into OB. And so, yeah, I remember that so vividly. Wow. I don't, I don't remember that, but I will tell you that, and this has guided a lot of my career. I loved the work at Elmhurst Hospital so much. And this is a lot of what has guided my career in that I loved that I was present for the best day of people's lives, but also the worst day of people's lives. 
and that I sort of got to be in the room for some of the most intense stories that I think we as humans have to offer. And for me, Elmhurst was tremendously eye-opening that way because of the diversity of the population. And that I enjoyed it so much. I remember thinking one day, I no longer think this way, but I remember thinking one day I would come in on my day off. I would rather be here than at home. I no longer feel this way. I now need my days off. Um, but that was sort of when I was like, you know what? This might be where I got to go. You know, we've mentioned uh, Elmer's Hospital in this podcast before because I've you know, had other people on who trained in Mount Sinai or went to medical school there. And just what an unbelievable place it is. And as you said, just the population's amazing in terms of diversity and kindness. They're just spectacular people to take care of. And there's so much that goes on there. And it's an amazing teaching hospital because the students and the residents are really involved in the patient's care in in a very personal and intimate way. You're really getting to know these people and you're, you know, as you said, part of the best part of their lives and part of the, unfortunately, the worst part of their lives. And it's, it's an amazing place. And I think that what you said about, you know, MFM is so true and our jobs we're fortunate to have that opportunity. And I think that's one of the really nice things about the book, which obviously we'll delve into, is it's not just the stories or the lessons. It's sort of this insight into what we what we're privileged to get to do every day and how advanced and how personal it is. And people don't always maybe understand that about what we're doing. I think even other, sometimes other physicians, other yes. people in medicine have no idea what we're doing which I think I go into the book how that can sometimes be actually quite dangerous or really, really compromise our care, our patient's care. I think you and I both have had the experience where a lot of our job is sometimes advocating for our patients, you know, and reminding somebody, what would you do if she wasn't pregnant? Because if you would consider taking her to the operating room for her appendix, then maybe it's not actually good care to treat her with kid gloves. Maybe it's discrimination, right? We have a lot of that where, because people don't truly understand that, the pregnant woman isn't just made of glass. She's a living person who has goals of care and isn't just a vessel for a pregnancy, that a lot of our care has to be advocacy because even other medical providers often don't understand what's right. going on. Yeah. I mean, because in medical school, I mean, you learn about pregnancy, obviously, and everyone does an OBGYN rotation, but for pretty much every other aspect of medicine, there's no mention of the pregnant woman. It's like, this is what they have. This is what they have. This is what they have. And they'll never say, oh, and if she's pregnant, it'll be this, or if she's pregnant, it'll be this. And so- most people go through all their training and they know pregnancy exists and they know that there's something going on there, but they don't really understand it. And so they're afraid and they're afraid as doctors because they don't want to obviously, you know, harm the woman. They don't want to harm the baby. And sometimes those fears lead to decisions that are not in the best interest of the woman or her baby. And that's where we have to get involved sometimes or always, usually. Yeah. I talk a lot about how because we don't tell these stories of maybe pregnancy or high-risk pregnancy or, or loss that you and I see and work with, that that creates real problems for our patients. You know, I think we've all had the patient who said, I wish somebody had told me, right? A lot of times they're talking about something really common like miscarriage, and we don't talk about that enough, so it feels very lonely. And then there's a story I tell about how that's really dangerous, even just on a larger level, on the hospital level, which is when I was a very, very junior trainee, we actually had a cardiac arrest on labor and delivery. We called a code, which, as you know, is sort of like sending the bat signal up for your institution. And we started doing chest compressions on this laboring woman and nobody came. Nobody came for a minute and nobody came for two minutes. And fundamentally what had happened is the code went out and everybody's pager said, cardiac arrest code, labor and delivery. And those people had never been to labor and delivery. They had no idea where it was. So when 
They figured out that it was, you know, that locked door on the eighth floor and they came upstairs. The ID system, which was tagged to only let people in who worked on labor and delivery so that nobody would ever steal a baby, which is truly very important, would not let them in. And so they were pounding at the door until we finally heard them and sent a medical student to open the door. And that's just a, like a little oversight right? um, that the hospital didn't consider that other staff might have to get into labor and delivery. But it also meant that we couldn't get the help we needed for two unbearable minutes. And that should have been thought through, right? But it wasn't because we're so often segregated into this like separate part of the hospital, separate care, treat with kid gloves, but sometimes it means you don't get what you need. Right. I mean, labor and delivery is sort of like a hospital within a hospital because, you know, we have our own little triage, like an emergency room and our own operating rooms and we have our own inpatients and outpatients and laboring. And so it it's important because the the women who come through there need specialized care and they need people to know what they're doing to take care of them. And that's the upside. But the downside, as you said, is if you need people to come from the outside. They may not know where it is. They may have never been there. They may not understand what's going on. They don't know the processes. You know, and it's true with you know doctors. It's true with nurses. And so I, you you actually there was a quote in your in your introduction which I, you know, I marked. It says nobody, not regular people, not all doctors, certainly not many of our policymakers seem to understand what happens in our clinics and our hospitals. They just they just don't know. Yeah. What actually prompted you to write? a book. I mean, most of us don't write books, obviously. I have a slide about this when I give a book talk. And basically, it comes down to writers got to write. I think for me, I wrote a lot in college. And then I stopped writing when I started going to medical school. I think I sort of in my head was like, I do this thing or that thing, but I clearly can't be both, right? You can't be a writer and a doctor. That would be nuts. And funnily enough, I think when I was an attending, I took a writing class, but I never really pursued it. And then I think you'll you'll appreciate this because I think maybe the the creative urge in the middle of a too busy schedule may be familiar to you. I remember I was my first year of fellowship. I had a nine month old baby. I was working very hard. I woke up in the middle of the night and was like, I must write down this story. I got out of bed and I went to my computer and I wrote down the story. And I started with little things. I started a little blog that I think nobody read except people who actually knew me. Eventually, I started writing for like Medscape. I had a blog for them and I started writing for my institution on occasion. And ultimately, I came to realize that the stories that I saw were this really precious thing that was also very hidden. So my need to write about them, maybe to process them a little bit, was also sort of the world's need to hear about them a little more, which really validated my writing. And so then I started pitching to actual publications. I started out at Slate. And most of my writing is still there because I have a great relationship with the editor. But I've tried to branch out a little bit. I have pieces in the Washington Post. I have a really long form piece in the Atlantic, which is very complicated. And maybe is actually about abortion, if you do want to spend an hour talking about abortion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I read that. I know we've, uh, yeah, I definitely read that. And then there's a whole topic about that in your book as well. And we will talk about that. It's it's so interesting that you were, and you're saying you were a writer and then you stopped writing and then had to write again. And you said that I understand. I'm the exact opposite. I th I'm pretty sure I was, uh, in nowadays standards, I would have been considered illiterate until maybe, you know, I don't know, midway through medical school or something. And I actually started writing, not creative, but more like scientific writing only when I was a fellow. I really never wrote anything. And then I started writing myself, again, more medical type of stuff, you know, for research and papers and chapters. And I got into that and I really enjoyed it. So I think I really took the the opposite road that 
that you did because I couldn't write a lick when I started college. It was pretty embarrassing. It, it's really interesting because actually academic writing is so hard for me and you're so prolific. So, so I'm very impressed with like just the amount of academic writing you managed to produce, which is incredibly hard for me. But layperson writing is a joy for me. Right. I mean, academic writing is very like formulaic like geometric, you know, right angles, you, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Whereas, you know, the type of writing you is much more like free flowing and sort of, you know, uh, spontaneous and thoughts. And, uh, you know, some people are really good at that. And some are just not the way you chose to organize your book is is interesting, because you sort of set it through a, a pregnancy, like start to finish, but you weave together stories about, you know, women you've taken care of, but also about yourself and your own stories. And how did you decide to do that? You know, it's a little bit hard. I spent a lot of time hesitating to write this book. Like ethically was a very complex situation for me. I spent a lot of time in the introduction talking about this. First of all, I'm a white woman and a lot of the women I work with are women of color. And so, you know, that privilege needs to be acknowledged. And there's also a deep discomfort with telling somebody else's story. And by definition, most of these are, are someone else's story. And for a long time, that's part of why I didn't write. I wasn't sure if it was my, if it was fair. A lot of people also ask me about, you know, consent and HIPAA, and we can talk more about that, but it's it's hard to navigate, especially in a field like MFM, where often you meet people in really extremes of emotion and asking them to consent to use their story would not be appropriate. Like you need to be just fully their doctor right then. You cannot be somebody who's novelistically investigating it at the same time. And ultimately, I did a couple things. One is I changed absolutely everything about every woman. I think there's a low ethical bar, which is HIPAA, which is federal law, you know, that the patient could not be identified. But I wanted it to be a higher bar. I wanted it to be so that a patient could not reliably even identify herself, that nobody would feel betrayed by me. I hope that's true. Right. I did a lot of things to try to do that, including writing about things that happened a long, long time ago. Although it's important to me also that people realize that all these things actually happened. You don't have to make stuff up in our business, the drama. Right. is. And then I guess I felt like if I was going to share their stories, it's only fair to put myself on at least the same playing field and share a little bit of my own. I think all of us, men and women, have gone through various sort of journeys in our reproductive lives, either to have a family or to not have a pregnancy. There's almost nobody for whom this is a completely benign topic. So I guess I felt like if I was going to tell other people's stories, I should at the very least make myself as vulnerable. After it's come out, had, do you know if any of your patients have read it? Have, have you showed it to them or have any of them reached out to you potentially? No, nobody's reached out to me. I really tried very hard to protect them. And I have to say that almost nobody in the book is a patient that I take care of within the last five years, which, you know, so for example, if I'm going to write about a placenta previa for that, patient, it was, you know, a terrifying um, once in a lifetime event. But for a doctor like me, it might happen, you know, twice this month. And so there are ways where I try to obscure that because for us, it may be slightly more common. I think what I end up saying in the introduction, which I, I think is really sort of the ethical background for this, is that, first of all, I would prefer these women to tell their own stories, but that wasn't the choice before me. The choice before me was to either tell their stories or not, or have their stories not be told right this second, and their stories are too important. I thought they needed to be told, and I tried to bring, I guess, the humility maybe that I know it's not my story, and that I'm not the main character in most of them. I'm the person in the corner of the room. I think you did a really good job at that. It was, I mean, it was very clear, you know, when I read the introduction, 
that you grappled with this. And obviously, I understand the the issues and understood them. And like you said, it's it's hard. There isn't a, a perfect way to do this other than you're fortunate enough to have a, a whole group of women who say, I want to tell my story, and then you facilitate that for them. But that doesn't always happen. And this is such important you know, information and stories for people to read. Again, like you said, doctors, non-doctors, whoever. And there is a way to do it, which does protect them and keep, you know, it private. And if you present it again with, with the humility that you understand this isn't your story and you come from a different, you know, place than they might, I think, I, I agree. I think it's important to do. Thank you. Jumping into the book, one of the things that I, I was struck with initially is your your discussion about choosing a provider. And what you chose to sort of emphasize is this this phrase, scut is love. Can you explain what that means? Gut, which doesn't it sound profane? It yeah. Sounds like- <laughs> well, it, it's, it's profane if you're a medical student or an intern. It's like the dirtiest word you could hear. It's true, but it really sounds like it's so vile. But scut is just all the work that happens in the medical context, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, that isn't what you're taught to do in medical school. So it's all the paperwork and the discharge summaries and the disability forms and the running the labs down to the running the blood work down to the labs and all the things that require almost no actual medical training and ultimately end up being, I would say, 80% of what we do, would you say? It's a lot. <laughs> it's um, it's unfortunately more than it should be. Yeah, it's maybe more than it should be, especially depending on how efficient your office is. And um, my offices have never been hugely efficient. But I think also, especially when you're training, it's a huge part of what you learn. A lot of the sort of unrecognized curriculum of medical training is how to swim inside this system, this large giant medical system where you've got to get your patient what they need. And learning how to do that is an art in itself. Also really sort of hard to do scut and be sort of a loving, attentive provider at the same time, because it is a little soul killing a lot of the time. Right. And scut is interesting because it's it's a noun and you could use it as a verb, like I scudded you know, my medical student and when you make someone do scut, it's a very, it's, it's a well-known word in the medical field. And it describes just like the work nobody wants to do. It's the, the busy work, the hard work, but you know, it's interesting because a lot of, there's a lot of debate over, you know, do you want your doctor to be a nice person or do you want your doctor to be sort of proficient? Obviously you'd like both, but which is more important and you sort of throw them both out and say, it's not really either of them. It's this, you know, doctor or provider who's going to, you know, roll up their sleeves and sweat for you. Yeah, I think this came to me. And actually, I will say this came to me from my friends and family planning. I work with, as many of us work with, many amazing abortion providers who I think people don't always realize this are a tremendous asset to those of us who are in maternal fetal medicine and on occasion have saved my patient's lives, right? A patient who got right. infected their uterus evacuated. They have the skill set for that, that I am so grateful to be able to access. And I came to this from, I was the sweet medical student at Nady Remembers who like really wanted to like love on my patients. I wanted to push with them and have these beautiful events. I think Nady, if I had grown up differently, maybe I would have been a rabbi. I don't know. <laughs> You'd be I, a good one. You're very thoughtful. I, do you think that we're not? We can talk about that another time. I do sometimes feel like we do a tremendous amount of pastoral we're, counseling, we're, and, we're, which is a we're RITs. We're rabbis in training, right? I think we're <laughs> RITs with scalpels. I, I, I said to one of my rabbi friends, "I'm like, but my job is so much better than yours because I can actually fix things, which they did not really appreciate." Um, <laughs> but it is, Nadia. Our job is so much better. I feel like I came from this place where, like, I really 
wanted to be this loving provider. I think I usually am this loving provider. However, I also sort of needed to grapple with the fact that that lovingness can also be very fragile. So that if I, for example, I'm taking care of a 16-year-old and I'm going to extreme lengths to get her a cardiology appointment and an ultrasound, and I'm doing all these things like getting her a cab voucher because I know that she doesn't get out of high school in time to get to our clinic otherwise, it all works great until some, something happens, until she says, well, I just didn't show up because I was tired. And then all of a sudden, all that compassion and all that sort of warm buzz just sort of can crash on the floor. And I remember having this conversation with one of my family planning colleagues where I said to her, you know, do you ever have a hard time? Do you ever have a patient where like, it just doesn't feel justified to you? And she said this really powerful thing because she's not a warm, emotional person. She said, you know, I don't know my patient's lives. I don't know them. I don't know what they need. They come and they tell me what they need and I believe them. Right, right. And I think also a lot of it is what's the ultimate goal, right, and what we're doing. And the the ultimate goal is to help a woman in whatever way we can to get to a, a good place, whether it's medically, whether it's you know saving her life or having the baby be healthy or having her deliver on time or having whatever it is, you know, there's something that we're trying to do from a medical standpoint. But yes, it's great to be kind to them. And it's always important to be kind. And sometimes that's also efficacious in getting what you need done. But ultimately, it's if you say, well, I was nice to her and I know what I'm doing and that's all I'm going to do for you, you may not achieve those goals. And sometimes it takes doing things that are sort of above and beyond, quote unquote, your training or your expertise to actually do it. And if you really care about the person and about the patient, it's not just you're not just going to smile and say nice things. You're actually going to make sure these things get done. And that's right. a level of devotion and responsibility that is hard to know if someone has it until you just see it. You can't, it's hard to sort of just figure that out from looking at their, you know, online profile or their publications or their degrees. And you know it when you see it, but it's very hard to, to sort of know that in advance. Yeah. Like who's going to be up at two o'clock in the morning pushing with you, right? Right. I mean, it's a little bit like the way we act in marriage or parenting. Like there's all the beautiful sunset photos and then there's the person who's, you know, doing the laundry at three o'clock in the morning and that's your teammate. So I think there's something there about just, you have to do the work. Another topic you spoke about, which is so pretty unique to our field is this idea of genetic testing for the fetus. And you're right. Everything is probably okay, which is really such a great summary of, of, pretty much every day of our lives. And that probably is really where the wrench gets thrown in. Yeah, I say that everything is probably okay and that we as MFMs do almost all our work in the probably. So it's a narrow place, but it is deep. There's a lot that goes on there. But everything is almost always okay. It's just a little ominous because it's not always okay. The real desire for most people to elide over the probably and just get to everything is always okay. And I wish that were true. It's true often enough that it's not a complete lie, but it's also untrue often enough that it's not fair to leave people with that. Right. I mean, you can, you know, you can bury your head in the sand and never do any testing. And like you said, 90 whatever percent of the time, it doesn't matter. Everything's okay. But if someone's, you know, unfortunate enough to be in that 5%, 4%, whatever it is, they want to know every little detail. They need to know it very clearly because they have to process it and make decisions and, you know, changes their whole future potentially. And it's really important. And one of the areas in that chapter on genetic testing that you go into in depth is this 
conflict we have between being paternalistic, which is sort of, you know, the idea of we tell you what to do, right? This is what's best for you. This is what you should do versus autonomy, which is I give someone choice and say, okay, here are the options and you choose because, you know, it's it's your body, your pregnancy, your family, you make decision. And why is that such a conflict? Why is it so complicated in our field? Well, I think it's in our jobs that it's really complicated, right? Because our job is both to guide people through an enormous amount of information that they can't be expected to know. Like that's why we went to school for a million years, right? There's no way, it's not fair to ask them to understand all the subtleties of Down syndrome testing. At the same time, we if we overly guide them, we're sort of taking the choice away from them and that's not right either. So curating information, giving patients enough information, but not too much information is I think so much of the art of what we do. And it's really hard to do the right balance where you're not overwhelming somebody to the point that they can't actually make a choice, but you're giving them enough to have them realize this is this is real, this happens, this is important. And I think it's it's an art. It's, this is the part of medicine I think that I'm get, only getting good at now, you know, 12 or 15 years in. Yeah. I mean, it, and there's so many reasons it's hard. It's, it's hard on the face of it because, again, where is that right balance between, you know, telling people what what they should do and what they what you think should, they should do versus giving them involvement in their own decisions and their own health care. But also every person is different that you're talking to. Their ability to comprehend information is different. Everyone has different education levels. Everyone has different comprehension of numbers versus concepts, right? People just intellectually understand things differently. And then emotionally, people come at differently. Some people are, you know, come in with horrific anxiety and some people come in with no anxiety. And obviously there's, it's, you have to talk to them differently. And also there's relationships involved. You know, that's, it's more than just them. There's a, there's a family we're talking about and there's so much that goes into it. And like you said, it, it takes so much people skills to sort through that and, you know, understand social cues and understand what they're asking and why they're asking. And, and that is something that takes so many years to develop and, feel like you're getting good at it. I mean, I feel the same way. It's taken me so many years that I feel more comfortable navigating that that conversation every time. Because you know what it is? I think you have to you spend years and years just getting like the medical information. Like what is the right thing to do? What can medicine offer here? What is the wrong thing to do? That takes years and years to sort of have in the palm of your hand. And then when you're really, really experienced, you can take that in the palm of your hand and play with it a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Right. For the first five years where you're learning how to talk to somebody about, let's say, genetic testing, or maybe even about a cesarean delivery, or maybe even about a blood transfusion, you're really still learning about how to talk about the risks and benefits in this very simple, clear way. Who needs this? Who doesn't need this? And then only, I think, years later, can you say, okay, this is what the guidelines say. But let's talk about who you are and what you need. That means you can sort of play with the medicine a little bit, but you can only do that with a lot of confidence that you are truly doing something not harmful with the patient, which I think takes a long time to have mastery of. Right. And I think it's also sometimes one of the one of the tricks I've learned is helping to put, number one, into context, what type of decision are we making? And I'll tell people, you know, there's some decisions like you have pneumonia, you need antibiotics. Like, what are we discussing? You know, there isn't like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to give someone a choice of three antibiotics because that's just ridiculous. Why would they know? They're like, you know, dude, you're the doctor. Tell me which antibiotic to take. I'll take it. Fine. Like, that's pretty straightforward. 
But when you're talking about things, like you said, like Down syndrome screening, it's not like that because it's not like there's a problem and we're going to make you better. It's information. And so different people feel differently about information, how far they're willing to go, how much they want to get. And so then I sort of break it down and say, well, this is a lot of times a personality decision. You know, if you're the type of person who wants to know every single thing about your baby before the baby's born, then you're probably going to lean towards an amniocentesis or a CVS because that'll get you what you want. And here's the downside and the upside. Whereas if you're the type of person who's like, you guys are nuts. There's too many tests. Everything looks fine. Like, why are you talking about all this? Then you probably want to be as minimalist as possible. And to help put them into context, sort of who am I and how would I go out making that decision? But again, you have to sort of understand what's on the table before you can start breaking it down that way for people. So the other thing I actually think is really helpful, and I've started using this when I talk with patients, but also when I'm teaching like our med students and our residents, I say, you know, the other thing is, and this is a lot of the book is about how narrative and medicine work together, is that this person is in the middle of a story and they're writing their story. And so from them, a lot of what has to do with a successful decision has to do with the story that they're writing that they're going to have to live with forever. So if they are somebody for whom a story about how I did an amnio and then I experienced a complication is an unbearable story, then that's helpful to know, right? Right. Um, because they're the one who has to live with it forever, not me and not you. So I think the example I give of this a lot is a patient with, let's say, a periviable gestation, somebody coming in at very early preterm labor with a 23-week or 24-week fetus. And I think it's helpful to realize that some of their decisions, just like with Down syndrome, but maybe even more loaded, have more to do with they need to feel like a good parent, even if even if they're a parent to a fetus or a baby who doesn't live, that they need to feel like forever when they tell this story that they are loving. Right, right. And so sometimes if we can understand that, that they're writing a story, it's a story that they have to live with in their sort of family mythology forever, that will help us present the options in a way that can serve that goal. Does that make sense? I have found this a really helpful structure. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately in the same sort of in the same light, it's, you know, she's the one who's going to have this in her, you know, in her story, in her memories for the next 20, 40, 60, whatever years, you know, for us, you know, we may or may not remember it, but it certainly isn't going to live within us in the same powerful way. And, you know, people have to be comfortable with their decisions or come to some sort of just, you know, closure that this is the decision I made. It was the best decision. And whichever way it goes, I feel like I, I was a part of that process. And so it's about helping people choose. It's not just giving them choice. It's yeah. about sort of helping them. And that's one of the, the main things. And I talk to the students and the residents all the time. This is what I, I go crazy when they do this. We'll, they'll be presenting a patient and I'll say, you know, whatever she's doing this and this, I say, okay, what's your plan? What would you like to do? And the response nine out of 10 times is, well, we could do this, or we could do this, or we could do this, or we could do this. And I'll say to them, I'm like, I know what the options are. Like, I'm well aware of what the options are. What do you want to do? Like, what do you think is the best? Or what does she think is the best? Or where are we going with this? And they have a very hard time processing that and figuring that out. And it's, it is hard to learn, but it's something you have to actually be trained in, making, helping make your own decisions, helping patients make decisions. And it's not the same thing as knowing. It's, it's choosing. Yeah. It's very different. I think that's true. So I think that's the art, right? And I feel like it's just now I'm getting good at it, you know, 15 years in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, better late than never. And, <laughs> and one of the other things that sort of frequently is 
a barrier to getting that done well is what you talk about with your ultrasound in particular, this idea of the medical language that even though, and and again, if it works this way that both people are actually speaking the English language, all right, we're starting at a good place, but you know, I could be speaking English and the patient we speak English and they're two different languages if I'm not careful to avoid all the medical jargon. Right. And I think what we talk about is that, you know, we're ultimately technicians, right? I, I joke that medicine is just heating and cooling and refrigeration repair, just on a much more interesting background. Like we have very technical words for the human body. We have, you know, words for every different part of the leg or the face. And we need those because we need them to fix the leg or the face. But it also, when you're talking to a patient, can sometimes feel that, I think the word objectifying is helpful here. We, we sometimes do need to make the human body into an object because we need to sew it and cut it and heal it. But that can also be very distancing for patients and sometimes in and of itself make it impossible to communicate. So in my chapter about language, I talk a lot about that, about how medical language is sometimes the way that we get a lot done the way that doctors talk to each other, the way we talk to each other over over decades, right? If I can look up an article that you wrote last, last year and say, oh, this is what's happening with my patient, that language has been so helpful that I know what to call it, that I know what it's going to look like at the end of the pregnancy. But if I use language that is so technical, it helps me in that way, but it might distance me from the patient and what she needs to know. Right. And it's, it's about translating literally one language to another uh, on the fly. Yeah. I've been in doctor's appointments either with you know myself as a patient or with you know family or friend as a patient and there's a doctor and they're speaking and i'll say i have no idea what you're talking about you know like i, I went to medical school i'm trained you've got to dumb this down for me like you're talking about something i just don't understand and that's really important you know i'm a doctor and i don't understand all the more so someone who didn't go to medical school to to advocate for yourself and say i really don't know what you're talking about you've got to you know speak in other words and all of us will say, oh my God, like, thank you. Like, I will do that. Because usually if we're talking that way, it's not because we mean to be confusing. It's, we just don't realize we're confusing. Well, there's even even subtleties in it. Like when we did our genetic testing, my husband is an economist. He works in numbers. He works in odds and probabilities. And he found the way we talk about numbers in genetics and in medicine, like completely intolerable. <laughs> He just found misleading and not useful. And actually, he like couldn't sit through our genetic counseling. So I think there's also some aspect there, which is hard to even pin down, which is like a cultural way. As someone said to me, I tried to explain this to someone. She's like, yeah, because ultimately you can tell me it's one in X or one in Y. But ultimately for me, the answer is either yes or no, that, you know, your, your pregnancy has this problem. And so it feels like 50%. It's not, but I only have two possibilities and it's one of them. And that was really helpful to me. But I thought it was really funny. My husband's really educated. He has a PhD. He just finds the way that we use numbers to be misleading and not useful in decision-making, which I think is, is sort of helpful in that even the most objective forms of language actually have some sort of culture and assumption behind them that are even hard to acknowledge because we're so immersed in it. Yeah, and it's also totally possible that the way you know, he or his colleagues would discuss these to us, we would say, that's not helpful. That uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Like it's not, yeah. And it, and it happens all the time. Economists are incredibly annoying. It's right. very <laughs> Economists, I mean, yeah. Economists are from Mars and MFMs are from Venus. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanted to go into some of the, the, the specific situations that you spoke about, these really very powerful stories and situations. And you mentioned it before, but I want to go into that a little deeper. The, this idea of what we call, what you and I would call a peri-viable 
birth, which you you know you talk about as a necessary story. So explain what that means. Like what's going on in that situation? This is something that I think everything about it is a little bit blurry, but I, I think at least for me, it's not an unusual consultation. It happens at least a couple times a week when I'm on our inpatient service. And ultimately in pregnancy care, we have this concept of viability, which is sort of when can a baby live outside a uterus? When can a fetus become a baby, right? When can we have a chance that this pregnancy will result in a child. And this is a really complicated concept, both because it moves. It has to do with technology in the NICU. It has to do with other things, like for example, a fetus with a really terrible cardiac anomaly may never be viable, no matter how late in gestation. And sometimes there are things that can mean that a really early fetus does well. So I think perivital birth is sort of one of the ultimate examples where the truth is very malleable, right? This story can end up in many different ways. Most of the time, if we're talking about a pregnancy that's, let's say, 23 weeks or 23 and a half weeks, technically some babies have survived, but the truth is that most of them die. That's just the truth. And then the other truth is that some of them live and a lot of the ones who live have terrible, terrible disabilities and conditions that they have to live with their whole lives. And the other truth is that we don't know which of those babies is gonna live, and which of those babies is going to live and be healthy. We just have so little information when we are making these tremendously difficult choices. And so my chapter about periviable birth is really about how, when I have a woman in this situation, she needs to tell us what story we're in. Are we in the story of a 23-week miscarriage, which is a really, really sad story, but in which we let her be alone and we let her mourn and we don't overly intervene? Is she going to tell us that she's in the story of a very early preterm birth? We, we will swarm her and we will poke her. And once the fetus is born, we'll poke the baby. They will probably not get to be together. And I think what's important is that people don't realize that this is a story that the woman is telling in her own life and in her own family, but that also for her physicians and her provider team, we can't take care of her until she tells us which story we're in. Because what's good care for a preterm birth is a malpractice for a miscarriage and vice versa. And so until she tells us what story we're in, the team is so uncomfortable. I'm sure you've experienced oh, that, right? It's 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 the hardest situation, obviously, number one, for the patient and the family, number two, for the entire team. And when I talk to the residents and fellows about this, I say most of the consultations we do in the hospital for people who are admitted to the hospital, relatively straightforward. They're sick. They're not sick. You do what you got to do. I said, when this happens, you have to pull up a chair and you got to sit down because you're going to be there for a long time. And this is a long conversation, again, because you have to go over what the situation is, what is the likelihood of this likelihood of that. And like you said, it's not known, it's just odds. And then we have to figure out which way are we going. And again, ultimately, that's her decision based on, you know, us helping her with the, the information and what the, the odds of everything. And like you said, if, if the decision is, we're going to try to save this baby, then there's 15 things we're going to do you know, for her, for the baby or everything. And if there is, if she says, no, I'm, I'm not interested in that, or at least not this week, then we're going to do none of those 15 things. And we're going to do 15 other things. Like you said, comfort care, turn down the lights, you know, let her be with people, don't bother her, you know, give her medicine for pain, like whatever it is. And they're totally different stories and they're different contexts for the entire labor floor. And it's a very tough situation until that it's tough the entire time, but certainly before that decision is made. And the decision changes also. It could change the next day because every day that you're pregnant, the outcomes are different. And you have to have the conversation again every few days. 
And also every few days, your emotional state, what you can handle, what you've absorbed changes. But a lot of also what I think is important about periviable birth is that there's a story that needs to be told there, right? The story is either of a miscarriage or it's of a preterm birth. But I will also say this, that when women don't tell their own story, somebody else is going to tell their story for them, right? Decisions are going to be made. Right. And so if I think what you and I do as people who really believe in a woman's autonomy over her own body, over her own pregnancy, is what we're really trying to guide them in is tell your story. Because if you don't, the story will be told for you. And however horrible it is to have to make choices, having choices made for you is intolerable. Right, right. And telling story is, is basically making those choices or having them made for you. Yeah, it's it's such a hard situation and it's one of the highest charged for everybody. And uh, as you said, if if she's able to sort of guide where this is going, you know, it's it's helpful for everybody, for the team, for her potentially afterwards that she has again, she's put in a horrible situation. It's not like any option is good, but ultimately a lot of people know in their gut which way they want this story to go and which story they prefer to tell. And it's just, it's such a hard situation. Uh, I mean, we've been in it a lot, obviously, but it's, it's tough. And I thought you wrote about it really beautifully and uh, important. And that's a chapter that definitely people should read if they're thinking about, you know, just reading parts of your book. And then you also talk, you know, in a similar difficult situation, um, stillbirth, and this idea that, you know, we always talk about birth, but we really you know, it's it's so hard. Do we talk about the chance of stillbirth? You know, what a bummer that is, you know, in a prenatal visit to talk about death. And, you know, so we, we may not talk about it, but we have a responsibility to talk about, you know, why we do all these things because they're trying to prevent stillbirth. But again, you don't want to scare people. But ultimately, it's also about letting them know why we're doing things and why they're important. I think it's so true. Like stillbirth is, I think, like a black hole. You don't mention it, right? It's invisible. Right. But this idea, I think, affects so much of obstetric care that we could lose a baby. We don't want to mention it because even just the mention is so traumatic. And even just the mention actually can often push patients to make decisions that aren't warranted or aren't rational because it's such a terrifying idea. But it's also something that you and I have seen countless times, right? People think stillbirth is something from you know medieval times and doesn't happen anymore, but it's unfortunately still relatively common, like three in 200, I'm sorry, one in 200 to 300 births, which is a lot. It means that, you know, you probably know somebody who knows somebody who's had this happen. And I do think that it underpins a lot of prenatal care is this unspoken anxiety as we head towards like late third trimester. And we never tell patients why we're so on top of it. We never tell them why they need to come for fetal testing so very often. And I don't know if that's fair, you know, not to speak your anxiety, not to say, this is what I'm worried about. But also the, the words have power and just mentioning it can be terrifying. And so it has to be very delicate. Um, but I think without mentioning it, a lot of our care just doesn't make sense to people. And that's not entirely fair. Right. They're like, why are you doing this? Don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. Everything's don't, fine. Yeah. I'm coming back on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, why yeah. am I coming three times a week? You don't want to know. You know, <laughs> no reason, no reason. Just come back on Wednesday. It's, I don't think uh, that's yeah. fair, right? Yeah. If you, if you mention if you mention the word stillbirth, that is the last word they will hear for the week. I mean, you're just, you're done. Like, that is it. The the brain is shut off, you know? It is a black hole. It sucks everything in. It is over. They're going to, like, walk in and be like, please give me a cesarean delivery right now. And that's right. not fair either. That's not the right choice. So I think we have this really difficult thing where, like, you don't want to mention it because it's 
it's this unfair concept. It sucks all the light out of the room. It sucks most of the rational thought out of the room, appropriately so. But it does. It's under. It's sort of the subtext of so much of our third trimester care, right? And right. yet we never mention it, which is a little bit paternalistic. So there's a balance there of how do I not terrify my patients? That's not fair either. But how do I sort of give them the idea that there's a reason why I'm having them come back Wednesday and Friday, yeah. you know, it's, it's very um, hard. I mean, when I, you know, I'm, I'm more of a senior doctor in our practice and, you know, sometimes patients will come to one of us and, you know, with their complaints about a junior doctor and, you know, you know, frequently it's something like, you know, we were talking about this and this, and then they drop stillbirth on me and, and I'll be like, well, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of problems going on and you know, we're all worried about it's this and that. And, you know, and I don't, I'm not saying that the, the doctor did anything wrong. It's possible. They said in, in the best, you know, context and they were trying to do what's right, but it's frequently, you know, people will be upset if someone mentions stillbirth to them, but that's why we do a lot of this stuff. Like we're trying to prevent that. We're trying to intervene before it happens. And so sometimes just not mentioning the word, but saying like, you know, your baby's at risk for, you know, complications and we're trying to, you know, intervene before something bad happens. And for some reason that is more tolerable for people than hearing the word, just because like you said that it's just there, they freak out and they shut down, which is understandable. It's terrifying. So it's so funny because I was thinking about this. I was on call last night and I was thinking about all the ways we talk about these complications, we use words like your baby looks happy on the monitor, right? <laughs> we talk a lot about stress, right? Like the, as if the baby has like difficult midterms, you right. know, really. And <laughs> your baby needs a Xanax. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> Babies having a rough day. I mean, I do say that I think labor's hard for everybody in this room is what I say. But I also think these words dance around, you know, because then if you say your baby doesn't look happy, I have to do major abdominal surgery on you. Does that compute? Does that match? Right. And so there are ways in which I think the sweetness of the words we choose, which I think are important in not terrifying people, sometimes doesn't match our actions. And that's a that's a mismatch that we sometimes have to deal with. We sometimes modify with tone, right? My, I might be using sort of sweeter or cuter words that you can hear I'm serious and I'm worried. But I think there is sometimes that mismatch where that sometimes contributes to patients really having no idea. Why did I go for cesarean? happened right then? Because I think when we're talking about whether the baby's happy or not happy, maybe that's not always in the best interests of the patient right then. Right. I don't know. I struggle with this language choice a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes just saying like, I am worried about your baby and yes. you know, I am worried and, and I always tell them, and I want to do A, B, and C, I expect everything to go well, but I'm worried if I don't do this, it won't. And, you know, it, it sets and they say, well, what are you worried about? And then I can I can start going into it, like if they really want to know and you could sort of, you know, dip your toe in the water of these things and see how they respond. But most people, if you start with something just simple like that, they get it. And then you said, again, it's it takes years and years of doing this every day to sort of figure out the best way to say it. And we all do it wrong many times. And we try to do it right more and more often as we as we get older and we do this more. But before you go, I wanted there's there's. One last topic I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, you address it at the end of your book, and I know you're passionate about this in, in life, is this idea of maternal mortality and racial disparities in healthcare. And it's something you write about, and I know that also in, you know, in your work, you're involved in this. And this has come to light, obviously, unfortunately, recently for other reasons, but it's such an important topic that we talk about it in medicine, but a lot of it is very superficial. And I think that your book is really an honest assessment of how like you and I, as you said, were, were 
white people, we, we don't obviously have the same experience, but we're in that world and seeing it and, and an honest way of discussing it and approaching it. And I imagine you grappled a lot with how to put that chapter together. It was the scariest chapter to write. I also feel like every time it comes up, I want to tell people, you know, I wrote it two years ago. So if it's a little bit out of date, please bear with me. <laughs> right. um, but I, what I felt really was important was that I, I kept reading, you know, all of us in, in maternal medicine, I think it's been very clear that we have a problem with racial discrepancies in care. And I think there's a real honesty about it, even from our leading organizations like ACOG and SMFM. Like there's no hiding. Everyone really is like, this is shameful. It's unacceptable. We must fix it. And I'm very proud of us because I think that isn't true in all the aspects of society where people are still fighting about whether it's true. We are clear. It is true. It is unacceptable. We, we don't necessarily know how to fix it yet, but right. people are working on it. Like this is something that is, it's, it's right. actively being, is getting a lot of attention as it should. Right. And people and, are, and people are not resting. That. Right. People are willing to talk about it. People are not saying, oh, no, no, that's in your pretty little head. That being said, most of the solutions I tended to see were sort of long-term solutions. They're amazing. They're important. I think we should elevate women of color. I think we should have more Black physicians. I think these are all wonderful, wonderful things. They will happen in the next 20 to 30 years, and I have to go to work tomorrow. Right. So my chapter was, I'm working in this system. It is an unjust system. It propagates a lot of terrible things for women of color. How do I go to work tomorrow? I could not go to work. That's one solution. I could just not go to work because I'm a white woman. I don't think that's the best thing for my patient. I don't think if you asked black women, that's what they'd want. And what I really tried to do is just an emotional grappling with what's my personal role in this unjust system and how can I be better tomorrow? Yeah. Um, and a lot of that has to do with implicit bias and sort of the ways that our, our own brains sometimes defeat us. Yeah, I think this is something that so many people are grappling with, and hopefully they're grappling with it. Uh, people who aren't grappling with it, maybe that's that's a problem. Because as you said, the, the numbers are are clear. I mean, you know, they're they're right out there. You don't you don't need a lot of fancy statistics to see that black women in this country do worse than white women in pretty much every outcome related to pregnancy. And so there is debate about exactly why that is or how much, you know, there's several problems, how much each problem gets weighted and this and what is the solution, like you said. But I just think that just the recognition that's a problem and some humility that we may be a part of the problem and not just an outsider, that we're, we're, we're in the middle of this and it's happening. And to take some ownership of that, I could maybe be doing something different and trying to figure out what that is. I think that's the way I look at it is that's, that's the best start we can have is just everyone coming to the table and saying, you know, there is a problem. I'm in the middle of this and it's on me also. It's not on someone else to try to fix this. And and from there, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not really sure what the right answer is. Like you said, it's very, very, it's very hard. I agree that it's so hard, but I think even just saying, you know, it's not something that's happening in a system separate from me, but I'm part of that system. Yeah. I'm to it, that's such a powerful place for each of us to start, right? And I honestly feel like that I'm hearing this in a more widespread way it gives me hope. We're beginning to start to understand. I don't know if we can say that we're fixing it, but we're going to change it. And the way I end the chapter is it's very, very hard to change, but it is intolerable as it is. Right. So that's our option, right? Right. No, I, listen, I, I, I agree. What would you say would in the process of writing this book, not so much like being the doctor, but actually going through the process of writing the book. I want to ask you two questions. Number one, what have you 
sort of discovered about medicine or, you know, maternal fetal medicine that you didn't really get just from practicing? Like, what about the process of writing the book? Did you learn about what we do? I think it has made me much more gentle. I think this is a funny way to say it. I really feel like the part of the part of me that's like a novelist, that's a writer that, you know, takes care of the patient in the moment, but later will go home and be like, wow, there was a lot of emotion in that room. And I really want to unpack that. I want to figure out what was going on in that room because it was beautiful and it was hard and it was complicated. It has made me appreciate sort of that larger context. And it has also helped me, I think, acknowledge that larger context when I'm working with patients in really complex situations like genetic testing and peri-viability. I think the fact that writing helps me unpack sort of the emotional landscape of a room is really helpful to me now to understand it as I as I walk into that room. And the second question is, what have you learned about yourself as a person from writing Ooh. this book? First, I learned that I love to tell stories. I bet you knew that already. I, I kind of <laughs> knew it, but I didn't know that I was allowed to. But it turns uh -huh. out it's a like, job. Um, and they call it writing. What did I learn about myself? I learned that if I don't write, I don't feel well. It's like how other people feel about working out. And this has been, I guess, part of me acknowledging that I'm a doctor. I work in this very scientific field but also might be a little bit of a creative person, a little bit of a writer. And for me, that's been a huge identity shift. Right. That I'm allowed to have this need or desire to put something in the world this way. So this is my midlife crisis. <laughs> it's not a crisis. You, you are a creative person. You are a writer. And the book is fantastic. It really is. I, I would definitely recommend it to doctors, to medical students, to pretty much anybody in the medical field, first and foremost. And then absolutely people who are just curious about pregnancy and healthcare, which is probably almost everybody in the world at some point in their lives to read this. It's a real honest look at what goes on in pregnancy for some women, what it's like to go through and why it's, it's challenging. And you may learn a lot also about life itself. And I really, uh, I enjoyed reading it. I thought I would just read and say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was, I, I was really, um, I was moved by it and I'm, I'm not, easily moved. So Javi, I really appreciate you writing it. I appreciate you doing what you do and for coming on. For people who are looking to find this book, you know, it's called High Risk, A Doctor's Notes on Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected. I got it on Amazon, you know, no plug for Amazon, you get it any way you want. And you have a website, www.javikar.com, which is C-H-A-V-I-K-A-R dot com. And obviously, if, if hopefully we all get to see other humans again, could do more book tour type things and public speaking. But this will this is great. Actually, just to jump in, I'm doing a ton of online events. So I will, I've been doing an enormous number of them. And they've been incredibly lovely and even fun. So if anybody's interested, you can reach out to me through my website, or my email is javicardoc at gmail.com. And I've been setting them up for synagogue group, book groups, residents, uh, fellows, I do a narrative writing workshop. And honestly, in the age of Zoom, it is so easy and I'm happy to do it. So please feel free to reach out. It has been one of the shining lights of my pandemic response. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Favi. And uh, all the best to you and your family. And I hope to, uh, to see you in person soon. Nadia, it's such a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www. Dot healthfulwoman.com. That's H E A L T H F U L W O M A N.com. 
If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.